Should we look at Romans chapter 8? I think we should. I have just a few verses this morning am I going to read. And I, I, in some ways, feel like we could get away with reading one verse because there is a lot to contemplate. We've gotten to the point now of Romans chapter 8, smack dab in the middle. There's been smaller, minor, hinged door moments in Romans, but this is a kind of a, a big door because there's going to be some summary statements about what we have now to enjoy in Jesus. He's been building a, a Lego fortress of logic, of gospel logic up to this point. And as I read now the first four verses, verses of Romans chapter 8, we are going to be invited to think about the standing that we have in Christ, and not only the standing we have in Him, sort of a, a theoretical one, but the now standing we have. What have we been freed from, released from? What's our status? If we aren't enjoying, what should we be enjoying that we have in Christ? So that's the beginning of Romans chapter 8. It's what we're looking for. I'm going to read the first four verses, and then we'll pray. The eighth chapter of Romans begins like this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. I hope I say it often, but I think my job is to point out the obvious, not let us go through life assuming things, especially in a spiritual sense. So let me say the obvious. We need God's Spirit to help us understand these words. None of us have arrived here this morning smart enough or spiritual enough. Uh, we could potentially have a, a moment where we just kind of go through the motions, or this is an academic exercise. Perhaps our distractions will be a bit too strong. Our doubts grab us in ways that we wish that they wouldn't. Our hurts and our pains might cloud the way that we've read Scripture. And I believe that because this is a living and active word, that right now, as we pray together, that God might move by His Spirit to help us understand in a way that we couldn't in our own power. So that's what we're about. That, that's what we're hoping for as we look at this together. So I hope you feel the need to, to pray, and it's not just a, an anxiety issue on me because I'm up here, but I feel the need to pray. So would you just bow with me and, uh, and let's go to God together to help us understand these words. Let's pray. Well, Father, we acknowledge that you are perfect in every way. We can't even fathom how well you do things. Not one bit of imperfection, not one misstep. Your holiness, your standard is staggering. You are powerful. You are the kind of God who can open your mouth and speak and the universe comes into existence. So we come here this morning humbly because we recognize that you're a God of power. And we come here this morning hopeful because you are a God who is near to us. You have not remained silent. You have you've not only drawn near to us, but then in your coming near, you've gathered us up 
You've held us close. And so, Father, powerful Father, as your children this morning, we ask that you would transform us, deliver us from the potential we have to to go through the motions or to miss it. I pray especially, God, for those who are hurting here this morning. You have so many promises for us. You're a a God who, who comes to the hurting, who is gentle with the hurting, who rebuilds them. So I pray for that kind of rebuilding to take place in many this morning. We pray for distractions and doubts, a kind of running, racing that goes on in our minds and in our hearts. We pray for a stillness as we sit before your word this morning. God, I pray for the heart of heart. Many of us have settled into stubborn patterns, and I ask that you, Spirit of God, would be powerful to shake us, to humble us. We're looking to you, and we expect uh, good things because we know that you are not only with us, but you're for us. So God, we commit ourselves to you. Teach us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Right around 1850, a young man who had very recently come to know Jesus and confess him had caught the eye of church leaders around England. And as the story goes, this young convert was tricked into preaching his first sermon at the age of 16. He was invited on a Saturday to come the next morning to go to church because there was going to be a young man there who would be very useful for the church. And he thought, well, I'm a young man, and I trust this older guy, so I should go. And it wasn't until he replayed the conversation later in his mind that he realized that he was being invited to his own sermon. And so he began to hurriedly pray. And uh, as I recall it, and I say that as I recall it, because I suppose if I get this wrong, it ruins the entirety of the message for the morning, right? So maybe, maybe don't point that out if you'd say, if you're a well-actually person who knows the history better, we'll talk later. But as I recall it, Charles Spurgeon prepared to speak on Romans chapter 8. He felt as though the power and the the fullness of this first verse of Romans chapter 8 would be the kind of thing that he might want to say if he was going to be remembered for his first words in ministry. He had taught on Sabbath day schools up to that point and clearly had some experience and was, was growing in his ability. But in his own autobiography, he points back to this particular morning as the first time that he began to preach. And for those of you who are in touch with old English fruitful dead preachers, that young man would go on to, to, I would say, earn a label of the prince of preachers. It is said that at different points in England's history, the, the number of pages printed containing his exposition of Scripture rivaled almost anything else in print in that day. And I mention Spurgeon sometimes because I have a bit of a, a bromance with him, as much as you can remove centuries. Because when I was a young man, I would steal away with old dusty books of his writings and his sermons, and I would spend lunch times there, very antisocial of me, I would spend lunch times there, poring over and reading 
through. And so much of what I've thought about this verse through the years has been informed by different things that I'd read from him. And as we go to look at Romans chapter 8, I'm going to break it down in a couple of different ways, some little hooks that might help us to hang some thoughts. I'm going to use some words that would be simple, perhaps here at the the beginning, and uh, some little phrases that might help us. So I'm going to say these now, and then I'm going to walk through them. The first, as I recall, this is a Spurgeon-ism, is that we needed to read this text carefully because there is more power in each word than perhaps many other places of Scripture. So the first thing to say is, Romans chapter 8 is not universalism. So maybe one thing to think about is not universalism. That's not the good news of the Bible. The gospel is not universalism. We'll come back to that in a second. Second thing to remember about Romans chapter 8, where does the good news flow from? The idea is not only is it not universalism, but it is not wishful thinking. That's another phrase to think about. Okay, where am I hanging my thoughts? How am I organizing myself this morning? Not universalism, not wishful thinking. And then finally, the thing that we're going to say is, in Christ, nowhere else. In Christ, nowhere else. Not universalism, not wishful thinking, in Christ, nowhere else. That's the ideas that we're going to try to think through as we look at Romans chapter 8. So we'll go back to verse 1, and I'm going to unapologetically, unapologetically stay mostly in verse 1 this morning, mainly because we get to come back next week to verse 5, where we revel in the idea of life in the Spirit as compared to life in our own flesh, and we'll cover a lot of the themes from verses 2 through 4. But I want to make sure that we don't gloss over what is contained here in the first verse. So, as I mentioned, it could be tempting. In fact, I think many in the world have offered up a kind of false good news, something that sounds good, and uh, maybe you'll feel why it sounds good, but it is not the gospel. So we need to be careful as we read Romans chapter 8, verse 1, to realize that this is not universalism. When he says, there is therefore now no condemnation, what you could hear What someone might be tempted to hear is, there is no condemnation. That's not what the text says. You see, it would be tempting, and all of us would love, one option if we feel the the pangs of guilt sort of crowding us in, and we feel the accusations, if we fear that we have misstepped, if we know that we've hurt others. It is possible to simply hear this phrase, there's no condemnation. The rules don't matter. Everybody, hey, it turns out that all of that is just going to be winked at. Nothing matters is a false road toward a kind of security that delivers you to more death, more shame, more guilt, not freedom. But I think that the world longs for something like this. When you haven't done your homework or you haven't studied, everybody wishes that the solution to that problem would be there is no test. It turns out there was no homework. There's nothing due. But that is not, of course, real. The reality is, is that the condition of humanity, which has been largely argument for especially the first three chapters of Romans and then carries all the way through, to feel the goodness of this good news that there is therefore now no condemnation, you must 
realize, and not only realize, but I believe internalize. That's where we've come through these words reckon over and over again, to reckon, to internalize the idea that there was, in fact, condemnation. That the reality of our sin, the breaking of God's covenants and commands, leave us in a place where his rightful wrath rested on all of humanity. It is only those who realize, no, wait, this was real. It is not a drill. Righteousness matters. Sin matters. God will hold the world to account. Every single crossing of T and dotting of I, there was real condemnation. We were under real threat of the wrath of God. This has been the basics of the Bible from the beginning. The idea of release from condemnation that was real and was there is what gives us grounds. It's the stirring for us to feel the release that we have in Christ. I want to consider a couple of different places throughout Scripture to remind you of the way that this works. The work of Jesus, which goes on to say that Jesus set us free from the law of sin and death. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh, according to verse 3. He was, look at verse 3, he was condemned, or he condemned sin in the flesh. So there is condemnation in the world. God is not opposed to condemnation. He condemned sin in the flesh. He, in fact, in his wrath, will bring condemnation. He promises it from the beginning. You know the story of Genesis. The story of Genesis is, in the day that you sin, you shall surely die. You will be condemned. Then, post-sin, there's whole sections where it goes through, and God is very fastidious about the way that curses are handed out for the consequence of sin. He says to the man, and he says to the woman, and he says to the serpent, and you can't help but read, because of the consequences of sin, in some part he says, curse, curse, curse. That's the reality of life in a fallen world. Our sin has consequences. So the Bible's good news is not, hey, everybody, we were wrong. It turns out, just do whatever you want. No, condemnation is real. I've always been struck by, and I think this will be on the screens, I've always been struck by the way the Old Testament ends. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Now, it's mostly good news. It really is. We'll read it together, though, but I want to note something. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. And I kind of sometimes want to put a period right there, but it's a comma. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. 400 years of silence. The last word of the Old Testament is, lest I come and condemn. I mean, what a hopeful thing. Elijah the prophet will come before the day of the Lord. Turning of hearts of fathers to their children and hearts of children to their fathers. Who doesn't want to see that? That's wonderful. But if you're waiting in anticipation, you needed to understand the stakes. On one side, we have the renewal of all things. God fulfilling every good promise for redemption. Hearts being changed and melded. And on the other side, he just throws it in there at the end. Look, all of this good stuff's going to happen, or I'm just going to come and destroy everything. I mean, just, or there's just going to be an utter destruction. 
or you'll live under a curse. You see, the point is, unless we find a rescue, unless Christ comes, unless there's something good to say, condemnation is the destination. The wrath of God, the eternal wrath of God stands ready against sin. And it's that that builds our anticipation so that when a decree comes and says that there's no condemnation because we realize the threat and the reality of condemnation, that we can start to get excited. I don't want to shortcut the good news. We're just going to pull it from other places. But note how the reality of condemnation and then it's being flipped in Jesus is what the Bible is about. Galatians chapter 3. I'm going to read from verse 10 to 14. So you can see the theme of condemnation or a curse in Scripture. Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. I mean, could it be more blunt than that? Condemnation. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Well, I feel that. I don't know if you feel the weight of that. Have you, have you abided by all the things written in the book of the law and have you done them? Verse 11, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by faith. And verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. What Christ did is not come and say, I found a loophole, there's no curse anymore. No, what Christ did is he came and he walked directly head on into the curse for us, becoming cursed for us. Because condemnation is real, the consequences of sin hang over us like a dark cloud And Christ came into this curse, and he became a curse so that forever God could declare of you no condemnation, no curse, so that from this time forward, every accusation that could be levied against you would be buffeted, pushed back, destroyed by the work of Jesus. The great accuser will be mute the day of judgment and can say nothing against you. The law itself, which hangs so heavy, will only say fulfilled in its status against you. Your own conscience and heart will be overwhelmed by the welcome of the Father who calls to you in Jesus' name because he took your curse. Onlookers, hecklers, shamers, bullies, all who might put you in a place of insecurity, thinking, I just don't know, I still feel cursed. There is the reality that in Jesus, your curse has been lifted, it's gone, no condemnation. The path toward freedom and good news in the gospel is not ignoring the eternal consequences of sin and righteousness. It's not pretending that the standards got shifted. It's not 
just thinking, well, maybe the good news here is that there's not ultimately going to be a judgment, but instead, the pregnant potential, just the fullness of Romans 8.1, comes by us reckoning with the reality that condemnation was not only possible, but rightfully ours. Unless God sends his son. Unless someone absorbs the curse. Unless the condemnation is shifted and pressed elsewhere. And this, I believe, has been what Paul's been laboring to show us in Romans up to this point. So we must read carefully. Every word in Romans 1 matters. It is not, there is no condemnation, period. That is a tempting thing to say. In fact, in some ways, I admire, I admire the, the empathy or the sympathy or the love that seems to be flowing through people who long to declare a kind of universalism. I mean, we should all feel for who wants condemnation. I don't want that for anyone. And so you can sense why that's so tempting to say, but we must realize that it's not the hope of Scripture. It's not the hope of the Bible. So secondarily, I said there's going to be another place to hang some thoughts. First thought, it's not universalism. You see, condemnation is real, but it has been lifted. Second, it's not wishful thinking. And that's where this wonderful little word comes in, now. 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 If I told you what I just described, right, and let's just say that you felt, you felt as just creepy, sort of tingles up your back. Oh my goodness, this is a horror story. I know my sin. I'm dangling. I'm dangling in the web of a spider coming to condemn me. You felt all of that. Then you might be prepared for, and what you would say is, when can I be released from this? You see, when you feel something in the midst of suffering, when? When you're going through the drudgery of COVID symptoms, when am I going to feel better? When will the chemo work? When will I get the job? When will I finish this dumb paper? Or dissertation for many of you. When? When becomes the question. When? And Paul very intentionally here multiplies good news. No condemnation. That's great news. When? Now. I haven't had many successes in training my dog. He's, uh, he's lovable. He's not super outright, like, defiant, but he has a little bit of a mind of his own. And so I watch sometimes, and I hear about hunters talking about, you know, labs and how they retrieve and how they're just so dutiful and long, and I, then I look at my dog, and I think, what went wrong with us? Where did we turn? But I've had a few successes, and one of the things that my dog is good at is he's good at what, when I say to him, leave it. Just leave it. So he is voracious when it comes to getting his treats and his snacks or something. And he'll just be going all over the place. But if I tell him to sit and I say, leave it, I can take a treat as tasty as could be, a, a, just a juicy bit of ham or anything, and I can put it right in front of his nose. And I say, leave it. And he will stop. And he just gets this look in his eye. And he can't even look at the treat. It would be too, temptation to be too much. He's learned Proverbs. He says, don't bring, don't bring embers into your lap. You know, don't burn your... He can't even look... 
He's like, oh, and so he'll just turn himself away like this, and he's staring at me in a corner like, please, and he will sit there forever. You know what he's waiting for? You know what he's thinking is? When, when, when is the suffering end? When, when, when? And then you should see the joy when I say, okay, now. Okay, okay. And the dog just jumps to attention. He just cannot wait. He dives into everything that he has, and he completely un, just with unabashed joy lives in now. Now. Now's the time. I can taste it. It's in my mouth. I'm eating it. It's over. The waiting is gone. It's now. He's very good at this now. And it's in those moments that I think to myself, wow, I really want to learn from this animal. Not worried about too much. There's something about the way he just enjoys things. And he came to my mind when I'm reading Romans chapter 8. And I'm thinking, when should we be enjoying this no condemnation? Should we still be feeling the pangs of accusation? Should guilt and shame drag behind us? Should we be worried that the curse might come back? When, Romans 8 says, when is this condemnation gone? What a delightful word now. All the fullness of Christ, all that he's earned for you, all the love and the affection and the welcome of the Father, when will this be realized well, it's now, Paul says. So God is powerful and he's other and he's beyond. And especially dutiful religious people would have been taught they need to be careful in approaching God. Maybe, you know, maybe they should fear a little more. They learned good lessons from the fact that only once a year the high priest could be in the presence of God. And so they might have been a little sheepish. But the wording of Romans invites them to say, no, listen, the dividing wall has been torn down. The veil is gone. Go now. Enjoy now. Be present now. Receive now. Spend the riches of Christ now. Run to him. So you might say, I know God is powerful and he's so far on there. I just don't, can I really pray to him? And all the testimony of the Bible says, oh, you can totally go now. He's for you and he's with you. He's waiting and he's listening. He's longing for you to come. You don't need to think about some future hope. It's not mere wishful thinking. He's already used language like this, but Romans chapter 5 starts very much the same way. Romans 5, if you recall, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace, and what does he say? In which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Where are you standing? Where are you now? And I think it's tempting to believe you may be in limbo, some spiritual limbo. I spent time helping a church planter in Albania for about a month. And one of the fascinating things about that country is that it had been under very staunch communism for a long, long, long time, so it was very poor. And it was also, I would call, it was sort of religion haunted, because what staunch communism does is it tries to wipe out all 
vestiges of faith or believing. But prior to that, it had been culturally Muslim for a long time. There was a day when I was walking down the street, and a, a young kid came up to me and the Albanian friend that I was living with him and his family. And he came up and through a little bit of English, it was pretty good, and then through translation back and forth, he asked if I would spend time with him that week because he loved English and he wanted to practice with someone who spoke English. But also, he seemed very interested in what I was doing and what I believed. And he kept saying, Christian, Christian. So I agreed and I was going to meet him the next day for coffee. I remember writing in a, in a journal, God, met a friend today, wants to practice English, can't wait to practice English gospel with him. I would just use English words and I would just talk. So we sat there and we talked and we went through a couple of perfunctory things and funny things about languages and back and forth. And then he was very curious and I didn't have to wait long. He started the conversation. He said, so what is it you believe? And who is God? And I found out that he was a devout. He was a practicing Muslim in his family and he was a very sincere kid. And he began to ask me and I realized very quickly that his problem came on this idea when or how could you ever know that you were right in God's sight? So he asked me like two or three times, how can you be so sure? Now you say you're forgiven. What do you mean by that? How can you know? And I would tell him, and there was a moment when I'm declaring and I'm saying to him, the freedom that I have in Christ and how I believe this is now and I know this now, and I could see his face starting to change and it seemed like emotion was coming. And I can't lie, I thought this was going to be a miraculous conversion story that I would walk away from and just tell forever. But instead, what I realized was the emotion was pain that he was feeling, that he feared he would never, ever know that assurance. And he was silent for a while and he said to me, I can't know this. He said, I can't know this. I hope that Allah may one day accept me. But the best that I can do, so the best that I can do is try to live as faithfully as I can every day under a sort of performance metric. And then at the end, I still don't know. And I said to him, well, if you do better than most and you, you live a righteous life and you get to the end, don't, don't you think for sure that you would probably enter in? And he says, no, we have no assurance whatsoever. I will never know that peace that you have. And I think about that guy. And I want to just yell to him that the blessing that he can have is a blessing of now. You can know now. You can taste and see now that God is for you, that he's forgiven you, that he's not waiting and seeing. He doesn't have you on probation. He's not just hoping and, and thinking, well, if this guy sort of cleans up his act or if she could just stop with this and that, No condemnation now. You're not an intern. You're not an undergrad. You're not waiting. Do you realize that all the fullness of God is leveraged toward you in fullness of love if you're in Christ now? Now. And I fear that sometimes we take on a badge of Christ sincerely, but we pray to him and we maybe even reorganize our life a little bit religiously and then we go on thinking, oh, I'm pretty sure that that'll get me through later. 
But I think we forfeit the power of the nowness of the Christian life if we don't dwell on these things. So, not wishful thinking. That's another hook to hang on. First one is not universalism. Second is not wishful thinking. Finally, I said it's only in Jesus. It's nowhere, only in Jesus. Scripture tells us that all of the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. That phrase is used twice in the first few verses of Romans chapter 8. They're not to be left out. Sometimes prepositions matter all, they matter for everything, for all time. All of these things, if there's even any part of your heart that is beating with and saying like, yes, I like this, these promises sound good, tell me about that no condemnation and the nowness of it, well, the only way to claim it, the only way to find it, Scripture says, is in Christ Jesus. If you leave out the preposition, if you don't understand that there is a positional reality to these promises, then you're just going to totally and utterly miss it. This is a matter of life and death. At the end of all things, there will be two kinds of people. There will be those who are not in Christ Jesus, out of Christ Jesus, and therefore subject to the wrath of God eternally. And there are those who are in Christ Jesus, and therefore subject to all of the inheritance due the very Son of God. Now, you may say to yourself, well, this feels like an exclusive claim, sort of narrow, sort of small. The reality is, Yes, it is an exclusive claim. Jesus said that the path is is narrow. But you shouldn't look at it that way, as though narrowing to Jesus is somehow an arbitrary aggrandizing of one historical figure. You see, this claim of all these promises being in Jesus is an exclusive claim in the same way that I would say to you, here's the deal, you can only breathe oxygen to live. Okay? I just want you to know there's a lot of gases out there. In fact, someone who's smarter than me could have said that the, I don't know, the, the atmosphere is like a lot of nitrogen, right? There's certainly some carbon dioxide out there. We're breathing that out all the time. The plants love carbon dioxide. No one gets to walk around shaking their fist and saying, I want to be like a plant. I can't believe these oxygen-exclusive beings. I want to breathe some nitrogen or some carbon dioxide. Now, the reality is, is that our very design is such that we have life only and through what we gather in through oxygen. We must be in the same way in Jesus Christ or we forfeit all of the beautiful promises that we've read about. Maybe I'll say it a different way. I have about every three to four years a fascination little flirtation with space. And in that way, I'm a lot like a billionaire. I mean, I'm sure you've already seen many of the connections. But also, also, I have a fascination with space. And I believe that by the end of my lifetime, it could be a pretty common thing for people to get to take trips to space. At least some kind of ISS, some kind of International Space Station thing where you could just go up there. And so I'm preparing. I don't know what you're doing, but I'm preparing. I'm going through the mental exercises. What will I see? How will it go? When do I get on? How do I buy the tickets? All that stuff. 
And imagine one day we go to the space station. And I look out the window and I see a bunch of people space walking because that's the next level. That to me is, is all, you know, they're just floating in the sea of tranquility. Legitimately, just, just out there. In fact, sometimes there's pictures of people who are basically untethered. They just have the little jet pack. And I don't mean those movies where it goes wrong, but it goes right a lot of times too. Now imagine I mean, you're on the ISS, you're looking out the window and you see these people spacewalking. And you say to yourself, I want to spacewalk. So you just walk over to the door and you open it. Thankfully, there's some smart astronauts and right before you get to open the door, they tackle you, throw you to the ground. They say, are you an idiot? Are you stupid? What are you doing? And then you say, I paid for not only a trip to this station, but a spacewalk, and I will have a spacewalk. Let me out there. You know what they'll say to you? They say, here's the thing. You have to be clothed in this suit. That's the only way to live. You go out there, there's two kinds of people. Those in the suits that live and those out of the suits that die. Because did you know that outside of the International Space Station, if you're in direct sunlight, it's about 250 degrees. 250 degrees with direct sunlight. Ouch, you say. It's so hot. I'll just enjoy some shade. So you swing around to the side that is shaded by the station, no longer any sun, and in a moment, it's 150 degrees below zero. You are not properly shielded for life. You're not clothed. You're not in the place that you need to be. And it's that kind of exclusive claim that Romans chapter 8 makes. You see, it is tempting to play religion. It's tempting to borrow from the thoughts of Jesus. It's tempting to just get a little bit saddled up close. But Paul says, here's the thing. No condemnation can be yours. And it can be yours now. The nowness of this is there for you. There's only one place to get it. you got to jump in. You need to be all in Jesus Christ. You need to be assured of the fact that all that happened to him happened to you so that all that is due him will be due to you. There's just no other place to find life. Remember that funny moment where Jesus wants to wash his disciples' feet and then Peter's all like, no, you won't wash my feet. And he's like, look, you don't have any part of me if you don't. And then he says, where's the hot tub? Like, wash me the whole thing. Just, just dunk me. That's how you'll feel. Being clothed in Jesus is not a burden. It's the only path to life. When God says to you, be in Christ Jesus, when you realize the consequences of being outside and the benefits and blessings of being inside, you're going to say, when I was a kid, you'd be like, you'd be like a, like a toddler in a winter snow storm. You ever seen a toddler in a winter snow storm? They can't walk, they're so clothed. That should be the longing of those who see what we have in Jesus. I don't want to spend a moment not perfectly clothed in him. I'm so afraid of life outside of Christ. I want to be in him. So, Romans 8.1 invites us to a life not of universalism, but of real escape from real condemnation. Not of wishful thinking, but of blessed nowness. And not anywhere or anyhow we please but only in Christ Jesus. Well, you might say, how does one 
find themselves in Christ Jesus. And I would say that this, this path to inness is a mere trusting, it's a falling, it's a resting upon him. That if you would have him, and he is already positioned and ready to carry, to grasp, to hold, do not, I would beg you, do not see condemnation as a trifle. Don't push off the blessings of what you'd have in Jesus. Don't be found outside of him, but claim him, and you'll find that he has claimed you eternally for good. Let's pray.